Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue in our study, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's one more time ask the Lord's blessing on his word. We pray that you would take this time of study now, Father, and make it what you want it to be in our hearts, instructional and encouraging in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again... This section of Matthew 6, this part of the Gospel of Matthew, is dealing with what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples, but also there were multitudes that heard this sermon on that particular day. We know that from references in chapter 5 and in chapter 7. It has been considered by most the greatest sermon ever preached, Uh, No doubt he did preach it on one occasion, but would allude to various aspects of it and and teach it and preach it in other situations and on other occasions as well. We know that because there is a similar and shorter message in Luke uh, chapter 6, which has been often called the Sermon on the Plain, which has a lot of parallels to the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, three chapters long, Matthews 5, 5 through 7, uh, very important for understanding of the Christian life and the nature of it. Now, the section we're in now, Jesus continuing in the great theme that he introduced in chapter 5, verse 20, where he said to the people, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. So he set quite a high standard, raised the bar as high as they could have possibly had it raised in their minds. They needed to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, else they would not enter the kingdom of heaven. And to show how that worked, he taught to them the proper understanding of the law in chapter 5, 21 through 48. And then he went on to expose the spiritual practices of the hypocrites in chapter 6, which we've been looking at. Now, the reason why he developed the proper exposition of the law was because the purpose of the law was to expose our sin and to bring us to a sense of our own need for God and for his grace and therefore lead us to God's solution, which is the cross. It's the purpose of the law. It's our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. But if we don't understand the law properly, it won't do that for us. And so Jesus gives the proper exposition of the law, not as the scribes and the Pharisees had been teaching it. And then, of course, because the people so idolized and looked up to the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus needed to expose their religious practices and show that those religious practices were not at all the real thing. They were not at all what real and true spirituality looks like. It's hypocritical religion as they had been practicing it. And so he exposes, again, the spiritual practices of the hypocrites. And we mentioned last week that the hypocrite is the person who is an actor under assumed character. And my friend Bill Walden defines a hypocrite this way. A hypocrite can be best defined as a play actor who wears a mask, someone who intentionally pretends to be someone or something that they aren't. 
that is a hypocrite. So the word intentionally is an important word in that definition. Somebody who knows they're not something, but they pretend to be that anyway to present an image to someone else. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees uh, had been doing. So last week we looked at the proper motive behind charitable deeds. It isn't to be seen by men. That was the mode of the scribes and the Pharisees. They wanted to receive glory from men and the way men idolized them for their spiritual practices. That's not the proper motive. The proper motive is to do what we do, our righteous deeds, before our Father in heaven who sees us in secret, and our Father in heaven who sees us in secret will reward us openly. Exactly. He'll reward us openly. And then Jesus spoke about the proper motive behind prayer. We're not to be praying so as to be known as prayers, and to be esteemed by men for our many prayers and sounding trumpets before us, as was common in those days, that we might be seen as great praying and spiritual people. But instead, we go into our inner closet, and we pray to our Father who is in secret, and our Father who sees us in secret, will reward us openly. There it is again, exactly. And that's the proper way to approach the spiritual life. And then we looked at Jesus extending that in verse 7 of this chapter when he told us not to use vain repetitions as the heathen do when they pray because the heathen are under the incorrupt assumption that the more words they use, the more they are likely to be heard. And that's not at all the case because Jesus said in verse 8, we are not to be like them for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So we need to go into prayer with that idea, don't we? We need to go into prayer with the idea, okay, the Father already knows the things we have need of before we ask him. He knows even what we're going to pray. Now, some people had trouble with this. They said, well, why then pray? If God knows what we're going to pray, and he knows the things we have need of before we ask him, then why pray? Why not just let him do it and just go on cruise control and... Let him accomplish the things he wants to accomplish in our lives without prayer. And the answer to the question, why do we need to pray, has to do with God's purpose in making us. His purpose in making us was that he might have fellowship with us. And that we might be individuals with whom he could share relationship and share his nature. It would be easy for God to just say, okay, as far as your physical and material provision is concerned, the day you get saved, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a huge deposit of money in a bank. And you can go draw on that. I'm going to limit how much you can draw on that deposit. But I'm, you can go draw on it every single day. You'll never have to talk to me again. You won't have to ask me for anything. You won't have to talk to me about what you need. You just go into the bank. You draw your daily draw. And that'll be it. And you and I can remain intimate strangers until you die and go to heaven. How satisfying is that to God? And how satisfying would it be for us? And the answer is not satisfying at all, obviously. He wants fellowship. 
And He loves to work out these issues in our lives relationally with us. So we have a problem, so we go to Him with it. We talk to Him about it. We rely upon His promises. We seek Him. And even though it's uncomfortable and difficult for us to go through that process, we always, on the other end of the process, look back and say, thank God for the process. We really needed that. It was good to talk to the Lord. It was good to trust an invisible God. It was good to believe His Word. It was good to pray in Jesus' name. It was good to trust in His promise and to watch Him work. Wow, God worked for me. That's exactly what the Lord is interested in, is that in sense of awe of Him that He loves to inspire within us as we seek Him. He makes that invitation, doesn't He? Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. It's an invitation that he will always uh, take us up on if we respond to it. So, very, very important concept in verse 8. I'd like you to keep your finger there and turn over to John chapter 16 for a second. I want to talk just for a second on the concept of father. Remember what Jesus said, your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So look at John chapter 16 and find verse 22. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. It's the night before he's going to die on the cross for our sins. And he says to them, Therefore you now have sorrow, but I'll see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I'll tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. Beautiful passage Jesus gives us here about our relationship with the Father. Jesus is saying, listen, my purpose here is to be a mediator. I want to get you into relationship with the Father. And when all of this is done, when the cross is completed and the resurrection is accomplished and the ascension has been finished and I'm at the right hand of the Father, you are going to address Him. But I want you to know about your relationship with Him, verse 26 and 27. I want you to understand that the Father Himself loves you. Why does the Father love you? Because you, Jesus said, love me. You love the Father, or the Father loves you because you love me and have believed that I came forth from God. Yeah, I can a little bit relate to that because I've got lots of people that love my kids. And when they love my kids, that's guaranteed that I'm going to love them. It's just something that's important. And our Father in Heaven says, you love my kid, you love my son, I love you. And so we have this relationship with the Father that has been created through what Christ did as our mediator. Get back to Matthew 6. So it's time for Jesus to teach his disciples to pray. And he says in verse 9, in this manner, therefore, pray. This becomes what we call the model prayer. And when he says, in this manner, therefore, pray, he is using 
the mood of command. So command to pray. This is not an option. This is something that he wants us to do. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word is hagiatso. It means to be sanctified or to be considered holy or set apart. Our Father in heaven, holy, set apart, sanctified is your name. That's where prayer begins with the proper understanding of who the Father is. Your kingdom come, verse 10. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's how prayer begins. Prayer begins with the proper understanding of the one to whom we're speaking. That's the very first and most important thing in starting to pray, is getting in our minds a clear concept of the one to whom we're speaking. We're talking to God. But we're not just talking to God in generic terms. We're talking to God as our Heavenly Father, the one that loves us. Right? Get that concept in your mind. We're talking to the one that knows the things we need before we even ask Him. We're talking to someone who wants us to talk to Him and wants us to ask things of Him wants us to worship him, wants us to be loved by him. That's who we're talking to. It all starts with that. We're talking to the one who is holy, who is set apart, who is in a class by himself. There's no one like him. That's who we're talking to. And then from there, we go right into our desire to see his kingdom come and our desire to see his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. I think this is a prayer that's been prayed many, many billions of times throughout the history of the church. And one day it's going to be answered in its fullness, in its completion. We should keep praying it. We should keep praying it in every situation. Really, this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, is exactly the heart of all intercessory prayer. Every time I pray for another person, or every time I pray for another situation outside of myself, the heart of that prayer is that God's will would be done in that situation as it's being done in heaven. The heart of that prayer is that His kingdom would come into that situation. That's what's missing. What's missing is his kingdom. What's missing is his rule and his reign and his power and the demonstration of his nature. That's what's missing. So I get to pray that in to the situation. Someone's confused. I'm praying for the person that's confused. What do they need? They need illumination concerning who God is. What he's like. What he's capable of. How near he is to them. And once they realize how near he is to them, the confusion goes away, doesn't it? goes away right away. So that's what we need to do is pray for his kingdom to be coming and his will to be done here in, on earth and here in that situation if I'm praying for an individual as it's being done in heaven. Now just overall, looking back on this prayer, you know, a lot of people want to know, should we pray this prayer? Is it a prayer that should be actually prayed, or is it just a model prayer? And I think, personally, my opinion is both. It's a model prayer mostly, 
contains all the key elements of prayer, but it also is a prayer that can be prayed because it reminds us of all the key elements of prayer in a very short period of time. Last time I timed myself, it took 24.47 seconds to pray the prayer. And so it's not a real long time, but in that short period of time, less time than it takes to air a commercial on TV, I have thought about and been in touch with the key elements of prayer. Who I'm speaking to, his reign, his will, and all of these petitions that we might ask of him. It begins with adoration of God, verse 9. It goes down to an acknowledgement and subjection to his will, verse 10. And then verse 11 starts asking petitions of him. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, what's this about? Well, it's a petition for our physical provision, the things we need. Daily bread. Much of the world lives this way. Daily bread. Uh, Many people in the world don't have refrigeration. They don't have a stockpile of food. They don't have a pantry in which they put non-perishable items. They don't have what we have. Because what we have is what we have, we are among the uh, 10% most rich individuals in the world. Just having refrigeration, just having a way to get from point A to point B, just having a roof over our head and adequate clothing during inclement weather. That puts us in the top 10% of the wealthy people in the world. So for many, this is a prayer that is very, very relative and very, very uh, important to them because of the fact that it's how they live. For us, we don't live so much this way, but we should still pray it. Because what it does is it reminds us of our keen dependence upon the Lord. Give us this day our daily bread. Yeah. Everything I have came from the Lord. Yeah. Everything I have needs to be treated as though God gave it to me. Yeah. I'm a steward over this. I'm not an owner of it. Yeah. I should give back to the Lord as much as he gives to me. Yes. Things are to be used. Not just to be uh, for my own purposes. They're to be used for God's glory. And that's all behind this prayer. So it's praying for the things we need. Uh, on a daily basis. Give us this day our daily bread. And of course, uh, it would also include the idea of, Lord, give me a job that I can, (laughs) you know, use the opportunity you've given me and the resources you've given me to work for my living. And so that's included in that prayer as well. And then verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So back to verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So these are supplications. And we're, we're basically, in one sense, asking forgiveness, but we realize that the forgiveness that we're asking for is conditional upon our forgiveness that we extend to others. I like to look at this part of the prayer as basically a covenant agreement with God. I say to God what I think is actually reasonable and, and just and fair. I say to him, Lord... I I need and want forgiveness in my life. 
but I'm not going to ever ask you for it or assume that you're going to give it to me unless I'm willing to extend it to others. So forgive me my sins as I forgive those who trespass against me. I have, there's a covenant relationship with God about that. Uh, it would be, I think, the height of pride to ask God for forgiveness and I'm not willing to forgive others. It would be spiritual arrogance and it would be just plain wrong as the parable of the king and his servant illustrates there at the end of Matthew chapter 18. I owe this huge debt to God. He's forgiven all of that debt to me. Someone else owes me a much, much smaller debt. I should therefore be willing to forgive that person that much, much smaller debt. Mark tells us, Jesus records this, and when you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, that your Father in heaven might forgive you. For if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. That's heavy stuff. Have you, have you experienced that before? Have you gotten to your knees in prayer or you've been walking around and you've decided to pray and then some face pops into your mind or some memory of something that somebody did to you in the past pops into your mind and you realize, wow, that, that's still raw. That still hurts. That still makes me angry. Well, what do you do with it when that pops in? What do you do with it when that's the thought that's come into your mind? You do exactly what Jesus said. You're standing there. You're praying. And so now it's time to forgive. Lord, once again, I want to just tell you, I release that person from what they did to me. I release them. I forgive them. I'm not going to hold it against them. I pray your blessing upon their life. And I'm going to move on now in my fellowship with you. That's the way to handle it. And this petition here, in Matthew 6 is our agreement with God that that's the way we're going to handle it. Don't lead us into temptation. Now I want you to look at the word temptation there in verse 13. Do not lead us into temptation. This has confused a lot of people because James is so clear in James chapter 1 that no one should say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Because God is not tempted with evil and he doesn't tempt anyone. Everyone's tempted when he's drawn away by his own lusts and enticed. That's how temptation works. So if God doesn't tempt me and he can't be tempted by evil and he doesn't tempt me with evil, then why am I to pray, do not lead me or do not lead us into temptation? If God doesn't do it, why do I need to pray that he wouldn't do it? If he doesn't do it anyway, seems unnecessary. And the answer to that particular quandary is probably in the meaning of the word temptation. The Greek word is the Greek word perosmos. If you want to write this down, you can be a Greek student for the day. P-E-R. A-S-M-O-S, perosmos. Perosmos is translated temptation or testing all throughout the New Testament. 
But the context determines the meaning of the word. Sometimes it means a testing of our faith. Sometimes it means a solicitation to commit evil. It's the same word, though. It can mean test or it can mean tempt, the way we usually understand the meaning of the word tempt. Now, the testing of our faith, that is definitely something God does. He allows our faith to be tested. And so we read in Genesis 22 that it came to pass in those days that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice for me on one of the mountains that I'll show you. That was a test for Abraham. It wasn't a temptation to commit a sin. It was a test. Would Abraham pass this test? And God tests us so that he might grow us. He tests us that he might prove us. God knew that Abraham had within him the capacity to trust him with the most difficult test that any human being had been ever asked to pass. God knew that Abraham had that level of faith in him. It was just waiting to be expressed. God knew that Abraham had it in him to believe God that God would raise his son from the dead if he had to offer him as a sacrifice because it was going to be through Isaac that Abraham's seed would be called. God knew that. And so he tested Abraham. That was a test which Abraham needed. It grew him spiritually. But it was also a test that put on display the kind of faith that was in Abraham's life. And it demonstrated his character. And it makes him the father of faith for all who believe. The pinnacle of trust. There's only one other human being that has ever trusted God more than that. And that would be the Lord Jesus when he was willing to go to the cross. And I say human being because he's man and God. He went to the cross knowing that the Father would not leave his soul in Hades. He would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. So Jesus was willing to take upon himself all of the sins of the whole world, go to the grave knowing that the Father would raise him up. And so Jesus' faith was greater than that of Abraham, but Abraham, as far as uh, that is concerned, uh, unsurpassed, except for by the Lord Jesus. And that was in Abraham, and, and the father knew it. And so he tested him. And so when we come to this petition here, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, it's my opinion that we're basically saying to the Lord, Lord, don't lead me into situations that are too much for me. Give me wisdom concerning the situations that are going to be passing along my path today. You know the kind of trial I can withstand, and you know what would be my breaking point. You know the kind of situation that I can endure, and you know the kind of situation that I would fail in. So Lord, I commit all of these things to you. Give me wisdom. Lead me not into temptation. Keep me from those places and deliver me, deliver us from the evil one, which by the way could either be translated deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. Either way is proper. It's a huge prayer. It's a prayer that ought to begin every one of our days. Because 
Only God knows what we're going to be facing in that particular day, and we certainly need his wisdom and strength to avoid things that will be too much for us. What this means is that we will never boast in our own strength. We will never desire trials just for the sake of having trials. We'll never intentionally go into a place of temptation, and we will never lead others into temptation, thanks to Pastor David Guzik for those insights. And then in verse 13, he ends the prayer uh, with something that's not actually part of the prayer, but sure fits, and it's an extension of worship. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And then in verse 14, an interesting statement. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So forgiveness is a major factor in prayer. And unless I forgive others their faults, their sins, their failings, their trespasses, then, and I don't release them from those things, then I won't get released myself unless I am willing to release others. And there are too many people, there are many people that are actually walking around in invisible chains, imprisoned by unforgiveness and bitterness. And as long as they walk around in these, un, uh, these chains of unforgiveness, they're being bound by their own choices. But once we release people, once we forgive people, once we say, you know, it's all under the grace of God, I can't hold that person against, that thing against that person, it's not my job anyway, I'm not their judge. Once I release them, then I become released myself. So that's the idea here. It's a very profound thought that we need to get into our spirits. And then the final way that Jesus speaks about the religion of the Pharisees and the scribes is in verses 16 through 18 when he talks about fasting. Let's read it together, verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And so, Jesus starts with the words, moreover, when you fast. Isn't that interesting? He assumes fasting as a practice among his followers. It's interesting, there are no specific commands to fast in the New Testament. No specific commands to fast in the, in the New Testament. And only one required fast in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement when they were to afflict their souls. Fasting is a voluntary spiritual activity. But Jesus does assume the practice. And what it is, essentially, it's the denial of bodily appetites with the motive of using that time and that energy gained just to seek the Lord and draw closer to him. 
Now, sometimes people try to connect fasting with something that they want from God. They want a new Maserati, so they'll start fasting for it. Not really. I mean, typical that a person who wants a Maserati isn't going to be the type of person that fasts anyway. They want something from God, and they think that if they do a certain number of days of fasting, it's going to obligate God. It's kind of like twisting his arm, and then God you know, is going to have to say, well, gosh, after all, they fasted for seven days on this thing. I've got to give it to them. And some people have that kind of view of God. That's not the purpose of fasting. Now, if I desire direction in my life, or if I want to get closer to the Lord, or if there's some sort of a thing coming up that I absolutely know I'm going to need supernatural strength for, I might go into a time of fasting just so that I can hear the Lord's voice more clearly and I can be more set apart to him. But I'm not thinking that the amount of fasting that I do is going to obligate God to do something for me. I used to think that. I put this little rule on myself, no eating for a certain number of hours before I teach. Because I thought that, you know, my fasting was going to guarantee an anointing in the pulpit. And then, you know, we were staying with this family for a couple of weeks when we moved up to the Monterey Peninsula. And there was no option to follow that plan because they were offering food all the time. And it was, you know, it would have felt weird saying, no, I can't eat tonight because, you see, (coughs) I'm fasting. You know, I just wasn't going to do it, you know, so I went ahead and ate the meal. And I was surprised that the Lord still showed up for the Bible study and helped me give it. I was sort of amazed. And the Lord really used that to teach me something, that he's not a God that is going to be obligated. He's not going to be mandated to do anything. And I realized that there were times when I felt the least prepared and the least spiritual, that the Lord gave the greatest results. So who can figure these things? It's all by grace. So we should fast. It's a good thing. But not to obligate God. Not as some requirement. Colossians 2 tells us. And we certainly shouldn't fast as the Pharisees and the scribes were doing hypocritically. Just to you know, put on a, a front for others. Shouldn't be for that reason as well. They came to Jesus and wanted to know why the disciples of John the Baptist were fasting, and of the Pharisees, they were fasting, but Jesus' disciples weren't fasting. They wanted to know why that was. And Jesus said, Can the sons of the bridegroom mourn while the bridegroom is with them? The days will be coming when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. In those days they shall fast. What was Jesus referring to? is referring to the time when his disciples would be deeply saddened by the loss of Jesus. When was that? That was when Jesus died and for three days he was out of sight. He was in the grave. He wasn't around. They were mourning and they were fasting during those days. But what happened on Sunday morning? Sunday morning brought the resurrection and a Messiah that had conquered death. You think they fasted on that day? Not at all. It was a time of rejoicing. 
And Jesus is with us ever since. I'm with you always, he said, even to the end of the age. So these are not days of mandated fasting, even as dark as it is in the world. But they are days of potential fasting, and I think it's a good thing that we do that. Just to draw near to the Lord. Pray for revival. Get close to him. Really seek God's blessing. So don't be like the hypocrites, Jesus said in this text. The hypocrites didn't wash or trim their hair. Sometimes they'd even put ashes on their heads when they were fasting. They'd get funny looks on their faces. But Jesus said, no, you do it very differently than that. Freshen up, look cheerful. Don't even appear to be fasting. And guess who will be watching you? Your Father, who sees you in secret, will reward you openly. He'll reward you openly. So it all comes down to what we want. The way we practice our religion. And you know what I mean by the word religion. The way we practice our spiritual lives. It all comes down to what we want. And we have an either or option. If we want the plaudits of man and we want others to think well of us, then we can live out our spirituality that way and we can get lots of kudos and lots of plaudits. And that'll be all we get. That'll be our reward. Or we can live our spiritual lives for our Father who is in heaven, who sees us in secret, and he will reward us openly. So it's really the choice we make. And doesn't it all boil down to this basic thing that we call the fear of the Lord. That's really what it's all about. It's about the fear of the Lord. Who do we respect the most? Do we respect human beings the most? And value their estimation of us the most? Or do we respect God himself the most? And value his estimation of us the most? Those are our choices. To live them out every day. The Pharisees, they chose man. Jesus' disciples... They chose the Father, and they lived authentic Christian life as a result. Makes me want to say what Joshua said. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Amen? Let's stand together, shall we? Where's Joe? (laughs) Caught him. All right, Lord, thanks so much for this time that you've given us, this time in your word, this time to just have fellowship with you in your word and now with one another. We pray you'd bless this time of fellowship together. We pray, Lord, that you'd cause our words to be edifying to each other. We pray that you'd cause our hearts to be in love with each other. We pray that you'd use this time to extend your kingdom. And we thank you so much for what you're going to do and for what you've already done this evening in our hearts. In Jesus' name. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. 
I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your 